Hello and welcome to my podcast Upfront. Today I'm joined by Tracy Follows. She's a futurist and she's the author of The Future of You, as well as running a consultancy called Future Made, working with global brands and businesses to help them prepare for what comes next. Welcome to my podcast, Tracy. Oh, hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, I've just said future a lot. Um, what is a futurist? And please, can you help us prepare for what comes next? Well, gosh, I hope so. Um, what is a futurist? Well, um, a futurist or futurologist, uh, as it's, it's more likely known in the UK, but I prefer the term futurist, um, is really somebody who's looking at the future implications of things that may or may not happen. So it used to be that it was very much about prediction. So particularly in the sort of 60s, 70s, <clears throat> whatever, it was around sci-fi, like scientific uh, predictions about what the future, what, was, what would be held in the future. Um, but now it's, it's much more to do with preparation. We look at lots of possible alternative futures and try and work out the implications of that and try to get as many people engaged in that as possible, because obviously it's all of our responsibilities to co-create the future. So, I mean, futurologist sounds very sciencey, but it also sounds like it's um, just hypothesizing and, and imagining, really. How do, you, how do you become a futurist or futurologist? Yeah, so it's a bit more than that, because everybody's a futurist in the sense that they can imagine or envision a future. But um, <clears throat> what you kind of find is that most people, when they haven't studied future studies, if you like, um, imagine a possible future where they are the centre of it. Um, so, for example, you'll read lots of pieces by uh, people who are writing articles about the future of something. And guess what? Their profession or their role is at the core of, of, of whatever they envision as a future. And OK, that's one person's point of view. So when you're doing future studies, you're trying to eradicate some of the biases and prejudices um, and a lot of the assumptions of what the future may or may not hold. And you are trying to be radical in some senses about uh, what what will come about in the future because if future studies is going to be uh, really useful it has to sound ridiculous to quote Jim Data because you're trying to push people's minds and their imaginations out and to consider things that they haven't considered so one of the models we use for example is to think about the probable future and that's what most people think about most of the time because they've taken in lots of information from the media there's a, a mainstream point of view about who will have the power in the future how it will evolve uh, what tools we might use all those sorts of things what we try to do as a, as a few as futurists is to um, be a bit more radical in our thinking, push out the ethics, push out the possibilities, the technological implications, all those sorts of things, and try and get people to pinpoint a preferable future, which may or may not be the same as that probable future. Um, so if you think of a, a brand like Apple, for example, you know, everybody thought the probable future was going to be uh, you know, a desktop on every you know, a computer on every desktop with Microsoft and everything would be very square, very dull graphics. And then Apple came along with a completely different vision um, because they had a different preferable future. Uh, it wasn't the probable future and it was so disruptive and so innovative. And so we're trying to make breakthroughs like that, I think. Okay, interesting. Um... I'm reading your book at the moment. I'm enjoying it a lot. The future of you. Uh, it's very. It's an it's easy read. Relate. It's yeah. it's very relatable and it's an easy read. But also, there's something that's quite reassuring about it. So, 
Tapping back to something you just said a moment ago, you said that when people imagine the future, they imagine themselves in the centre of it. And I expect this is why um, futuristic films are quite so often dystopic, because the creator, you know, the story writer is projecting forward their own personal fears. We do imagine the future in terms of what it will mean for us. But your book isn't written like that. Um, It doesn't reflect what an individual's fears would be it, it is about you know these these possible probable futures so there's quite a lot in the book that I'd like to go through with you and I think we'll have to probably revisit in another episode if you'll if you'll do that the main subject that I wanted to pick up on today is digital ID because that's in the mm-hmm. news a lot at the moment um, but before we get onto that main subject can you just tell me the one thing that excites you most about the future and the one thing that alarms you most about the future one thing only in each direction Oh, it's, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the same thing, because for me, the most interesting things about the future are also the most terrifying. So this is back to the point about seeing the pros and cons in everything and the way in which it can pan out and you can take, you know, different uh, routes. So it's, it's definitely um, the brain computer interface. I'm doing a lot of work on that at the moment. I'm quite obsessed with it. Um, And I'm seeing a lot of investment going into it and we might we might touch on it when we talk about digital identity but um whether it's a elon musk's Neuralink or uh whether it's what blackrock are doing with neurotech i am absolutely obsessed with it at the moment because i can see that there are lots of very practical interesting useful applications um obviously we're sold a whole narrative at the moment about how those uh those applications will help people with prosthetics or if they've had a disability you know they'll be able to um, mind control their limbs, et cetera. And that's all very valuable. Um, But I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) I know that that's just the gateway to uh, a lot of other applications. Um, But, you know, if we think about how we might use a bit of server space to improve our IQ, store extra memories, share um, thoughts with other brains, et cetera, all of that is coming down the road. And I think it's exciting, especially for the creative industry, because one will be able to share ideas in a connected consciousness. Brain to brain. Yes, exactly. And many brains, uh, potentially. Um, And so a friend of mine calls it, you know, you won't be working on Google Docs, you'll be working on Google Mind Docs. That's a good way to think about it. Um, So for the creative industries in particular, that's really interesting. But... As I make the point in the book, you know, the technology of the self, which I think is the new dimension to the self, is different to the psychology of the self and the biology of the self, because I own those. <laughs> They're part of me. Well, the technology of the self isn't. It's a, it'll come through a platform. I'll have to sign up to terms of service. So it's the policy regulatory areas around these sorts of technologies, like brain computer interface, which alarms me. Um, mm. And so this could go lots of different ways and i think we're going to need you know new regulation new laws um, for uh protection of one's mind if you like and um of personal identity which is which is kind of why i wrote the book i guess because it, i feel we need to protect our personal identity in the 21st century mm, I'm like, there's, so, there's so much there i haven't got to, i haven't got to that chapter in the book i'm now exhilarated and terrified all at once i think that you know that kind of natural human caution there's a natural human caution when an idea uh, like that is discussed. I think there are very few people who jump in wholeheartedly and only see the positives and feel, you know, full throttle enthusiasm. That, that natural caution is an important break, isn't it, to put controls in place. 
one thing that occurs to me is the idea of cookies. You know, you know, online we're always being asked to to check cookies um, and make sure that little bits aren't dropped all around our computer tracking us. Well, what if you what if you choose to sign up to a platform and and uh, take part in Creative Minds? Uh, will cookies be left on your own software? You know, is there is there a possibility that um, once brains interface with computers that you never get your privacy back? Oh, yes, exactly. Um, well, we're in a post-cookie world now anyway, so we're not going to have cookies um, anymore. And uh, if you talk to people in the advertising industry, um, people there are different points of view on what's coming next, whether it's going to be kind of put into the browser, whether we're going to rely on biometrics. Um, certainly when we get into the virtual world, um, the, we'll have advertising that's hyper-targeted through our kind of emotions and micro-expressions. We can talk about that if you want to. Um, so all those sorts of things are going to happen. Um, but I think uh, there, is a, there is a concern for me that it becomes confiscatory again, like all these things are. So, so let's say I downloaded a language because I want to talk to you in, I don't know, Italian for some reason, we're doing a project. Um, and if I don't do certain things or behave in certain ways or um, not nudged, uh, not agreed to be nudged in, this, in a certain direction that they want me to be nudged in, they might turn that language off. So then I can't do that piece of pro that project with you, you know. So I think there's a, a trade and an exchange. We're very used to now exchanging lots of personal ident uh, identity data, but also lots of our behaviours in, in order to enable us to access and continue to maintain the use of these services. So I'm thinking like something like um, Google's inclusive language recommendations you know if I'm using the wrong words now Google are going to make suggestions to what the right words or phrases might be for me I personally don't want that but a lot of people will put up with it in order to engage with and continue the use of a service and one can imagine that with a brain computer interface but to a more <laughs> precise uh, degree um, so one might find that um, one only has access to certain services and of course the other um, area of concern, well, there are many, but the other area of concern that springs to mind is the inequality of it because it won't be it won't be cheap. Um, these sorts of these technologies are not cheap to uh, develop and research, and they won't be cheap to use either. And so one thinks about well, what strata of society are going to have access to some of these things and be able to connect one their thoughts up together, and which uh, strata of society are going to be completely and utterly excluded? Maybe they're the lucky ones. <laughs> Depends how you look at it. Um, so there there are many many questions, and this won't come to fruition for another at least twenty years probably, but. There are lots of advancements um, and at the moment it's very invasive of course we should say that you know like Neuralink's very invasive you need to you know pretty much have holes drilled in your head and there's uh, it's it's not even the technology it's the ethical and legal implications around all of that and so all of those barriers and obstacles need to be overcome and that's going to take time but there's certainly a, a narrative and certainly a flow of investment that would point towards this being um you know I mean why carry your phone around, your smartphone around, when you can basically have all the gubbins of it um, directly implanted into your physical body or your, you know, your mind? So it mm. will come. Do you know, uh, you mentioned the biology, you own the biology of it. When human beings started living with uh, wolves, wild dogs, about 15,000 years ago, our brains shrunk a little bit and so did the dogs. So 
one theory behind that is because we were relying on each other there were part, there were things we didn't have to do anymore you know the dogs uh, we, we we collaborated in terms of guarding hunting and feeding and that created a, a a change in our brains biologically i wonder what something like this will do will it advance our intelligence or reduce it we'll have to see I think Baroness Greenfield's already done quite uh, quite a lot of interesting research on how children's brains are changing because they're using iPads <clears throat> and um, smartphones. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think um, so. I, I, I think there's. Um, she, um, I think I can't remember her conclusions, but I think she's she's saying that yes, there are changes. But to me, because I come from a media background as well, I'm mostly interested in the media point of view. I see the brain computer interface as a new medium if you like, uh, as much as anything else. And one of the things that this and virtual reality and all of the technologies that we're talking about now, I'm trying not to say the M word metaverse, um, there I said it, um, all of these sorts of things, they're putting us in very immersive environments where you'll appreciate this, I think, where writing isn't used anymore as the primary form of communication. And so that's very interesting to me because when we write, to paraphrase Marshall McLuhan, um, we are creating a separation when we use a phonetic um, language. We are pushing out and separating ourselves from others and from the environment. When we're in these more immersive media environments, whether it's a shared brain or whether it's just a virtual, virtual reality environment, uh, it's much more emotional because we're less separate. We can't be separate in the way that writing allows us to be. I think he said something like... Um, Writing is like uh, driving a car. Uh, it gets you further, but it separates you from your surroundings. And so we're moving into a new media landscape. And so that's going to change the way that we interact with each other and relate with each other. And it's going to make, and you can already see it now, it's making um, dialogue, I was going to say dialogue, but it's not really that. It's making um, communication more emotional and less fact-based and rational. And I think mm. we can we can expect that to be a big trend over the next whatever well, 20, 30 years. Wow, sounds fascinating. We're going to have to revisit this. But for now, on to digital ID. So first of all, Tracy, why would we even have digital ID? Let's go back to the beginning. Well, I think why would we even have ID? It's just, it's exactly the same thing. Why does anybody need ID? One needs ID because they need to access things, um, whether it's services, uh, whether they be financial or healthcare based, or, you know, you need to prove officially, authentic, you know, verify yourself, your proof of personhood, really. And we do need those things. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the world is no longer just analog, physical, it's digital as well. And a lot of these services have been digitized nations are being digitized and their public services are being digitized because of it and so we need identity to access those sorts of things um, we have some identity documentation but it's analog so it doesn't work for these digital or digitized services so that's why we need it and it's very basic so i often use the example of you know if you go into the bank and you want to open a bank account you have to bring a utility bill and some official documentation like a passport or a, a driving license. Now, the bank will take copies of that and then they'll go and put it in their file. Nobody worries about that. You know, who's got those files? Where do the copies of your passport or utility bill go? We have no idea. But because it's not visible, 
um, in the physical world. Nobody really bothers about it or worries about it. Now, in the digital world, what we really want is some sort of system like that, but with additional privacy protection, because we don't want those bits of what were paper in the physical world flying around, but would be digital records in the digital world flying around. We don't want that. So we, we need to create, um, if we've got the ability to, um, a system that replicates the kind of documentation or uh, verification that you would carry around in your wallet or use to open a bank account, but we need it in a digital form. And if you've got the opportunity to put some more privacy protection into it, then one would take it. Separately to that, though, I think, is there are some forces uh, at a global level who would like to use digital identity um, to create a system where it's like a global system of digital identity where everyone has a unique number and can be kind of um, tracked mainly so that their climate emissions can be sort of monitored, analysed, and perhaps in the end even monetized. So I think what's happening in the digital identity space is a lot of different things. People think digital identity is just one thing. It's not. There's a lot of different parties with different priorities. And at the moment, what we're seeing is a jostling for, you know, their priority system or programme to take precedence, really. And that's what's really going on. But to answer your question, that's why we need a digital identity. So we can. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, and, you, you know, you mentioned global forces, which plays into, you know, could play into accusations, conspiracy thinking. I but don't the, mind. the fact. <laughs> the, fact is that, <laughs> the fact is that people have people have fears about that kind of level of control. That's what people are frightened of, that they can ultimately be controlled through digital ID. So who do you see the global forces as being? If we just quickly delve into that. Yeah, I always think it's funny, the conspiracy theorists, because I'm a futurist. Every, you know, I am very used to saying things where I get absolutely hammered, particularly in social media. What an idiot, you know, like on the 5th of March when I, uh, 2020, when I said COVID came from a lab, oh my God, the amount of people who unfollowed me or insulted me. And it was before we even went into the first lockdown. I knew that had come from a lab. Um, and then years later, the truth comes out and everybody forgets you actually said that. So it doesn't, you know, whatever. So I'm used to being called a conspiracy theorist or a loon or, or whatever you like. Um, I think the global forces are the World Economic Forum, etc. It's really the, It's really the people we don't even know the names of, though. It's the big banksters. You know, this is the resetting of a, a financial system. And if you want to reset it into the digital sphere, away from an analog sphere, then um, you're probably going to need a digital identification, verification, tracking kind of system. So that would be much closer to a Chinese social credit system or ADAR, which is what operates in India, which is where there's a biometric or maybe even two biometrics linked to a unique number um, and that is your digital identity. And that is run in a very centralized manner from the government. What I'm talking about as a potential solution to digital identity is a much more decentralized model, which is uh, user controlled, um, where you have, well, we can get into the details of it, maybe if you want to, but where you have a system that allows you to share what details you want with whomever you want and not overshare any details. So if I go and I want to prove I'm over 18 to buy alcohol, I have to show my driving license at the moment. Well, it did. Now it's got my date of birth on it. It's got my residential address. You know, I'm sharing that to a complete stranger at a checkout in a supermarket. So what you really only want to share 
is um, the attribute that is relevant to that. So they don't even need to know what your date of birth is. They just, the system just needs to know that you have a date of birth, which is, which places you over the age of 18. So if you can get to those sorts of systems, which are decentralized, feel a bit more anonymous, they're privacy protecting, all that sort of thing is a good thing. But of course, you know, they've been long, long in, um, in uh, development, you know, for 20 years or more. Uh, and it's a, it's a hard slug, I think, for the people who are kind of developing this sort of stuff because it's, it's from the ground up, it's not from the top down. It always makes it a bit more difficult. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds like a winning option to me. I personally find that really appealing. I don't have any issue with the concept of digital ID. I think it sounds extremely convenient um, and saves us carrying bits of paper around. It, it, it truly is convenient. But I like the idea of being in control of it. So when you talk about user control, and I don't particularly want the state anywhere near it because of the centralized yeah. control that offers. So is what you're talking about what I mean, I I don't know much yet, Tracy. You know, I'm reading your book and I've read some articles, but are you talking about what's known as self-sovereign blockchain yes. ID? So can well, you explain no? Yes. Yes, I am talking <laughs> about, yes. Well, I am talking about self-sovereign ID. It doesn't have to be on the blockchain. Okay, let's break it down then. So explain to me a little bit about self-sovereign and then blockchain or what the other form could be. Well, um, self-sovereign identification or digital ID is exactly as I've just um, uh, suggested. It's you have the main form, I think, at the moment is verifiable credentials where you have some proofs, if you like, or, or credentials um, that allow institutions, let's say, or organizations to verify you. So what would happen is they put in, you know, you go along to your bank or you need to access something, they put in a proof request and then um, you're end of the system. Because it's really about matching public and private keys, if you like. So that's where things are kind of hashed and on the blockchain. But when those keys match, um, their proof request is given a, a proof response and when they then they match that's fine and you can do whatever it is you want to do um access whatever you want, want to access you've been verified and um it's clear that it hasn't been revoked or modified or anything like that so it could be a qualification from a university it could be yes your, your driving license it could be a, a health passport or access point of some description um so that's kind of how it works now it could be on the blockchain. It doesn't have to be on the blockchain because this is decentralized. Just because it's decentralized doesn't mean it has to be on the blockchain. Tracy, can you just explain blockchain in a nutshell oh and God. in simple terms? <laughs> yeah, there's a challenge. Okay. So a blockchain is a ledger. It's a database, if you like. And what happens is every time there's a new piece of information created, it is stored on that database and a new block is created and it is added to that chain. That's why it's called a blockchain. So every time there is a new piece of information or transaction or whatever it is you've got going on on the blockchain, when that happens, a bunch of computers, thousands of them usually, try and solve a puzzle. And when that is solved in a consensus-driven manner, um, that gives the okay for that block to be created and it's added to the chain. So it's a cryptographic way of storing any kind of data or information that's valuable. And it means it's pretty transparent because you can always check it and everybody, every node in that network can kind of check it. And it also means it's immutable. It can never be changed. So there are pros and cons to that, obviously. So why would um, you not want self-sovereign ID to be on the blockchain? Well, you might want it to be on the blockchain, but you might not. Um, I think 
it, it depends what you don't want is as i've just said it's immutable so you don't necessarily want somebody going back through the records and having a a a, a story of you if you like every every transaction that was made uh, every part of every bit of information that's available you might not want that but what we probably will have is a system where it's kind of like the digital identifiers, like um, like your email address is a digital identifier and it's issued by um, an operator, let's say. Those things might be stored on the blockchain, but your own digital identity itself isn't really stored on the blockchain or it just certainly doesn't have to be. And I think that's the um, that's the. Uh, the difference really because i think people think once they have a digital identity everything about them is going to be able to be tracked or traced in this immutable way and i don't think that's i mean it could be if you choose the wrong system but i don't think it has to be okay is digital id inevitable yes oh you sound like sir tony blair don't you dare say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I i think it is inevitable too but there are lots of people that are really railing against it that that um, see it as forming part of a papers please society and they're very resistant to the idea of it what do you think is behind that resistance well I completely understand that resistance I mean I have that resistance too but what I'm trying to say is digital identity isn't one thing there are many manifestations and different ways of doing it and what we need to do is choose the right ways we need to make it open source we need to have a conversation about which bits are on the blockchain. We need to understand verifiable credentials and we need to pursue a self-sovereign um, uh, method or framework for it. Um, these people are right to be scared about a digital identity, which is closer to the RDAR system in India or China or some of the other, I used to say more authoritarian countries, but one can't say that now <laughs> because mm. authoritarianism is everywhere, quite frankly. It just, it, it just depends on where you look. Um, so, uh, and I think one of the other concerns is that we might not want a centralized system where the government is in control of authenticating you and tracking you, if you like. Um, but we also equally might not want a system where private companies are doing that as well. Um, and so this is one of the dangers. Um, and people I've interviewed who work in the self-sovereign space, you know, they're very keen to say we need to get away from, sorry to use a bit of jargon, but a Web 2 world towards something that's more Web 3. Obviously, Web 3 being a more decentralized option, Web 2 being the likes of the platforms we've become used to over the last 20 years who have gathered and harvested our data and are using it to monetize and commercialize it to their own benefit. And so these are gated big platforms now. And we want to get towards something that's more networked and fairer and um, doesn't require the permission of a central authority. So people, some people are right to be concerned about that, you know, but it's not, I don't think, correct to be concerned about every possible solution to a digital identity because we're never going to get into a digital world then where we are opening up access to important services to everybody who will need them. Why mm. should those services only be accessible to those who've got the techno technological wherewithal or you know, whatever? So it's all about the types of systems we use, but quite frankly, the public aren't engaged in this. It's very technically difficult to understand. It's pretty impenetrable for you know, the man in the street, me, anybody really, unless you put quite a lot of effort into researching it and nobody's got the time to do that. So, 
So these things have a momentum of their, their own um, and we could be going in the wrong direction quite easily. Okay, zooming back out, do you think any generation has ever faced as much change in one lifetime as we are? I think back to being uh, a girl and having a telephone on a curly cord in the whole hall and writing actual letters you know, to boyfriends and family um, to the fact that you know, within our lifetime, we will have Neuralinks or the equivalent. And if we go back to our grandparents, you know, they had crystal radios and goodness knows what the generation ahead has. The difference is the advancements that have come in our lifetime have been communication technologies. And when there are radical innovations in communications technologies, it accelerates everything else because it's communication. So that's been the difference thing um, you know before it, with industrial um, advancements machinery things like that it's been much more about productivity now all of our innovation technologically is about creativity and communications and that's what makes it feel like it's accelerating and that's what makes it feel like it's changing so fast that we can't keep up with it sometimes because it's giving our minds a kind of um overload information and communication overload a lot of the time we live in a mediated world now that's the biggest difference like the telephone you could think of it as a media it's a communications media i guess but it isn't anything like and it doesn't have anything like the potential of, of a smartphone and and that's the difference it's just a completely different level of um of of technological advancement Amazing. Well, it's been so interesting. Um, I'd love to talk to you again because each each chapter in the book prompts a new conversation. I'd say to people who are interested in the future, interested in digital ID, any of the subjects we've touched on, I really recommend The Future of You by Tracy Follows. Tracy, if people are interested in learning more about digital ID, what's a good, balanced, interesting source of information or news product for them to follow? Oh, okay. Well, you can go to my website, which is www.tracyfollows.com, where I post up lots of podcast episodes with interesting people working in and around the identity space, um, including digital identity. Um, or, hmm, I don't know, I have to think about that and give you a list. <laughs> Maybe you can put it in the show notes. Sure. Well, if you, if you have a list, I'll put it in the show notes. Tracy, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for having me.